Hey, hey guys, this is Thomas Green, this is Movies After Work, and this is it, this is the big grand finale of all things, this is, well not of all things, of just this single solitary thing, not all things, I don't have that kind of power or authority, but this is number 25 through number 1 of my all-time favorite films, we have hit the final episode of this little adventure, we have hit the big ones. The ones that some of you have been waiting for. I'm not sure how many. Five. I'll go with five people have been waiting for this. This has been so much fun to to work on. This has been so much fun to look back on. Uh, Once I've done number one, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, kind of the retrospective for me in not just creating my my top 100 films of all time list, but also the experience of looking back over all the films I've ever watched. Um, as I, again, I've gone through all of Letterboxd, gone through all of the films in their catalog to, to mark the ones that I have watched, and uh, now is the, is the big... You know, now I'm able to kind of look and reflect on on my viewing history of of my life and and what what I've watched and where I might have some shortcomings and and where I hope to broaden and expand my horizons. So, with that said, let's dive in with number twenty five, which is Paddington. I had absolutely no faith in this movie going in. I was nervous because I am a fan of the character. I am a fan of Paddington, what he represents, uh, the message that he embodies about um, embracing those who are not similar to you, about um, what love means on on a large scale and and how little true and proper love for someone cares about differences of any type. Um, but this was a, a movie where they, they did the, the big red flag thing that you see a lot of the times where they just marked, Oh, from the producers. And not only did they do that, it was from the producers of Harry Potter and I'm not a Harry Potter fan. So all those things were gigantic red flags to me. I went in thinking that I was going to come out of the movie feeling bad for Nicole Kidman, uh, having to play this, this villain in this movie. And instead I, I was so emotional watching this film. I was, I was moved. I was blown away by, how they handled the subject material, how they respected the character. Um, Ben Wishaw's vocal work for Paddington was just the most ideal voice that I honestly think anyone could hope for for the character. Um, I came out of it, I honestly was jealous of how much fun Nicole Kidman clearly got to have making this movie. Uh, And... I, you know, I, I went on this big log hunt to try to find, uh, the, an album for the band that's in the movie. Uh, and I ended up buying the, the soundtrack for the film, not just because 
I, I, I mean, I like the score, but also it was essentially the only way I could have, uh, their music and, and Gerard Street, one of the songs, uh, the song at the end of the movie, uh, it's on my, my regular playlist of music. I absolutely love that song. Um, but, uh, I just loved so much about this movie. I loved how it handled the, the material again, it just did it in such a great way. Um, the, the modernization of it was handled just beautifully. Uh, it was just a, an all around, um, great film that I, I feel more and more people need to experience. Um, the, the one last thing I really want to point out about the movie that really impressed me was that it didn't go into the, um, to the, the current trope with kids movies of, we have this sad moment in the movie. Let's milk it for everything it's worth. It's sad. You get a moment to feel sad, but then it moves on. It does, it does everything it needs to do from a story and character standpoint, and then it doesn't linger on it for excessiveness. And I really appreciated that because I, especially when I went to go see the movie, I was getting really, really sick of all the movies that were doing that. Um, I won't name any of them right now because I'm focusing on movies that I love. So I'm, I'll, I won't focus on that. So that's, that's what I'm going to say about that film. So with that, we are moving on to number 24 and number 24 is blazing saddles. I, I struggled so hard with, um, how much Mel Brooks was going to end up on this list. Uh, and I, I ended up uh, finding myself with just, just the one movie, but it, it's, I mean, it's a quintessential, uh, not just Mel Brooks film, but comedy in general, uh, brilliantly written, uh, by Brooks and, and Richard Pryor and, and masterfully acted by Little. He just, he knocks this film out of the park and makes this movie and this character his own, quite frankly, in a way that even Gene Wilder with Young Frankenstein doesn't achieve. Um, nobody ever took the reins of leading a Mel Brooks film and and just running with it and making it such a perfect them film as as Little did with this film. And, and for that, he is one of the most underappreciated comedic actors who has ever lived, in my opinion. Uh, but this, this film, it is smart. It is unhinged in all the right ways. It is a beautiful menagerie of tropes that are executed with great precision to, to result in, in a movie that is flat out timeless and a movie that is fully accessible. You don't need to be a, a major Westerns watcher to be able to appreciate all the stuff happening in this movie. And of course, I mean, the, the fourth wall decimation of the third act is just such it's, it's quintessential Mel Brooks that, that has been a, that is a blatant inspiration for so much of what we see in the world of fourth wall breaks in this day and age. Um, the only people that have come close to pulling off something similar was the 
um, the show Moonlighting in one of their finales when the chase against the bad guy took them around the lot. And it, it it's great, but it's still reaching, grasping for air, trying to, trying to get towards this moment. Um, Dom DeLuise just shows up out of nowhere in this movie for, for a fantastic cameo. Um, for one of the most, I, I wish it didn't have an offensive word so I could quote it lines ever in film, in my opinion. Um, just because of the way that he says it and his foot's, it's just, it's so good. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's quintessential Mel Brooks watching. So if, if you need an entryway into Mel Brooks, I, I, I worry that this is a, a peeking out option, but it's definitely, it, it definitely should be part of your first viewing if you're, if you're venturing into his world of film. Um, now, number 23, number 23 is Che part one. Uh, this, this is one of those movies again, like uh, a couple other that I've mentioned on this list. I watched the, the trailer and knew I was going to own this movie. It took forever to own this movie because nobody went to go see the fricking movie. Uh, so they, they didn't exactly rush getting it out on video, but the, the time and craftsmanship that, that lives in the, in the realm of the epics of the golden age of the, the movie studio industry, where you either built a set that could be lived in or you just went and filmed on location without any, um, any, any filter to it. Um, this, this lives in that world with Benicia del Toro, just giving, giving one of the most amazing performances of his career. Uh, Steven Soderbergh making what I think is the best film of his career. Um, the film is just, it's got this design to its pacing that is so methodical and so precise that it leaves you wanting more, which fortunately there's a part two, so you get more, but because this starts, this is the start of the ball rolling, so to speak, for, for, for Che, that it, that it has a momentum that for many obvious reasons couldn't exist in part two. And it's part of why, you know, it's, it's, it's part of why part one is, is, is my preferred of the two films. But obviously if you're going to see one, you need to see the other as well. You need to see the journey the whole way through. Uh, now number 22, moving on from there. Number 22 is ex machina. Um, the only thing I truly, truly dislike about this film is I was working in a movie theater when it came out and the amount of times I heard people go, uh, yeah, uh, can I get a ticket to X Machina or, uh, the, the robot move, I, the amount of different versions and people not just calling it X Machina, just skin crawl a little bit, um, with with the way it was, but 
it just, it's one of those movies that by all accounts should have just been boring as hell. But because Alicia Vikander especially gives this out of nowhere tour de force of a performance, she ropes you in, drags you along, and forces you to be in the same shoes as Dom Hall Gleason. And it is just terrifying to try to figure out for yourself who is lying, who is telling the truth, who is the test subject, and who is the test material. Uh, it's it's a, a fantastic commentary on what we define as human interaction in this day and age and what we define as being human and potentially being too human. And, and you know, Oscar Isaacs in this film, obviously you have to talk about him because he just, you know, he was... You know, when when this came out, he was still kind of, you know, you either had heard of him or you had no clue who he was. But after this movie came out, there was no way that you could escape knowing who he was and knowing that he was this amazing actor that was clearly going to be taking over the world at some point. And he he just keeps getting bigger and bigger and he just keeps growing and growing with his career. And it's just going to keep, you know, it is exciting to see where his career goes. And I'm hoping that Alicia Vikander's gets back on track because it deserves to be, because she is a fantastic actress. Um, just because everything else about the Tomb Raider movie might not have been 100% on point. Doesn't mean that she wasn't and that she wasn't just a like a plus casting so yeah um number 21 um number 21 is a film called novitiate uh now i've i've this is another one of the movies that i'll talk about a bunch on twitter and it, it, this is one that so many people missed, and I think if people hadn't, I think it would have been one of your award season darlings, um, if it had got more attention. This is this to me is a horror movie, a straight out horror movie. Uh, it, the whole film is about uh, a nunnery school during the the transition into Vatican II, which was when uh, the the Vatican Council, Vatican League, they they altered a bunch of the rules, like um, replacing Latin in certain certain parts of the vernacular and and um, relaxing certain rules and admonishing certain behaviors and punishments for um, for atonement that were enforced and you're following this, this young woman who is in one of these schools being led by an absolutely terrifying Melissa Leo giving, giving 
the new Nurse Ratchet, in my opinion. And she is, she herself is in a crisis of faith because the Vatican is changing all these things that she believed in. So you're getting what is a doubling down from her on trying to keep things the way they were. And so as a result, you've just got this woman pushing so hard and the things that she is doing to these women is terrifying and you fear for them and you fear for their lives and their safety. And it, it, again, it is a straight up horror film that I think not enough people paid attention to. Um, so this, you know, this is, this is definitely a big one that I'm like, go, go watch the damn movie, go rent it, buy it, whatever, and watch this movie because it is amazing. My, my wife and I went to go see this in theaters and when we left, we couldn't talk because we were just still so in shock about what we had just experienced. Um, but uh, moving on from that to, uh, different, different side of the world. Number 20, number 20 is Captain America Civil War. Um, I, this, this movie had so much about it that I, I loved, um, you know, you've, you've got Baron Zemo as the villain, but the main villain in this film is Tony Stark, our, our beloved icon of the MCU or Captain America, the title character of this movie, depending on whose side you were on. And I have heard so many people give amazing arguments as to who, and you know, who is right, who is wrong, yada, 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 and I, I, I have my own views, I'm not quite, I mean, for, for me, I'm very much, I'm not Team Stark, I'm not Team Tony Stark, Team Iron Man, whatever you want to call it, all the way, but I am very much him in that moment in the movie, where he is, what I think, sincerely promising to Captain America, that we just need to sign this. Once we've signed it, then we can, you know, then we can start working out the details. And he might be naive in deciding to sign and then try to negotiate. You know, it should really, like, his emotions are letting him do things out of order, but I'm very much, I, you know, I lived in that ballpark watching the movie, so it was just disheartening to see this happening. But, I mean, on top of that, Again, as somebody who grew up with comic books, seeing Spider-Man show up in the MCU and be played by somebody who was knocking it out of the park as both Peter Parker and Spider-Man was fantastic. Um, I loved that we, you know, we didn't hear, we didn't hear with great power comes great responsibility. We didn't hear Uncle Ben say that, but we did hear what Spider-Man took away from that being said, how he interpreted it, which is when bad things happen to people and you could do something and you don't, it's your fault. And the fact that he took that as took it as that you already like, you know, the guilt that's on him. And, and I, I mean, I don't want to go on it too much, 
so much Spider-Man bashing these days, uh, weirdly online, but I mean, you're always going to love, you're always, uh, you're always on some level going to love the Spider-Man that was the same age as you because you could relate to him. And then as you get older, teenagers get whiny. Therefore, Spider-Man gets more whiny. It's just kind of the inevitable reality of life. But I truly believe that Tom Holland has given us, um, uh, just an absolutely amazing Peter Parker and an absolutely amazing Spider-Man. Um, whether or not the writing always allows him to fully do it can be debated on, but I think his performances speak for themselves. You also got um, my number one character that I wanted to see get introduced into the MCU. Black Panther showed up. Chadwick Boseman just knocking it out of the park even before he has the suit on, he is T'Challa. And you are so, so excited and so on board with him. Um, and then, like I talked about with Avengers Infinity War, you know, and this this one, they win the battle because, you know, they get Zemo and none of them necessarily get killed, but they lose the war. And if they didn't lose that war, if they hadn't lost that war, they would have won in Infinity War. Just, they, they would have been a full-fledged team that could have planned everything and gotten everything figured out. But because they were a fractured team who weren't ready to talk to each other and communicate and be on the same team, you ended up with the results of Infinity War. So this film is just such a great setup of the tragedy upon tragedy that is to come. Um, so it's, you know, it, it, to me, it's just a fantastic soup. It's a fantastic superhero film. It's a, it's a, an unconventional political thriller in, in some of the most entertaining ways we got to see characters interacting that had never interacted before. We got to see characters on the big screen, either for the first time or in ways that we hadn't gotten to really see them before. We just got so much that we had never really gotten before. Um, so for that, I just so happy. Um, Moving on from that, number 19 on my list is, um, sorry, just, just as a quick explanation, there's been a bear recently in the woods around the house that I'm living in right now, and occasionally I see something move and I think, oh, am I about to be in the Revenant? Um, but no, I'm good. All right, so... Number 19, guys, uh, staying in the same vein, my all-time, my personal all-time favorite superhero film, and number 19 on my list, Hellboy, the Guillermo del Toro, just beautiful piece of film and of, of superhero genre as it was still maturing and developing into what it is now. And I, I still believe that he is a big part of how we got it to be on the scale that it is now. I mean, we had, um, 
we we had we had this movie that did a great you know this fantastic job of balancing homaging the graphic novels while at the same time being its own thing um we had this movie that um that balanced the alter ego and the the superhero and normally we don't really get the two um, nor, and, and with him, it's not very, it's not conventional, obviously, because he's, doesn't really get to have an alter ego, but his hunt and, and drive for that alter ego is, is where you get that. And, and so to have it be balanced in that way is just so, it was just so refreshing. And I, I think it showed the way in a lot of ways. Cause like the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, it's, it's a good movie, but the balance to me, like we, it, there's so much rush. It feels to the, um, to through the alter ego stuff to get to the superhero stuff, unless we're doing the romantic storyline. And with the X-Men, they, the X-Men movies have all, every single one of the X-Men movies has dropped the ball on them having alter egos. Every single solitary one of them. They have failed. Like, you look at the, the, I mean, I'll, I'll move, I'll move on from that. But they've, the, those were the two big ones outside of, you know, 80s Batman, 70s Superman. Those were the big ones that we were having as the superhero, new superhero genre era was coming into being. Hellboy was the first movie to give us a real balance of alter ego and superhero. And you have to have that if you're going to have a good superhero movie. That's why the first Iron Man took this C-level character with a guy that you most people only knew if they were a housewife who watched Ally McBeal. And it became this mega movie that kicked off one of the most ambitious franchises in film history. So with that being said, Hellboy, you'll, you'll never get better casting than Ron Perlman. When, when the creator of the graphic novel and the director both have the same person in their mind before even talking to each other, you know, it's, it's going to be the best fit. And I mean, nobody in that film gives a bad performance. Nobody in that film does not fit their character to a T. And it's hard not to love a superhero whose slogan isn't something, you know, isn't something like Avengers, you know, you've got Avengers assemble, you know, all the different ones that you've had for Superman, depending on which Superman it is. And then you get Hellboy and his slogan, quite frankly, is "Eh, crap. And that's, that's just great. That's just great. And it says so much about the character. Uh, so we'll move on from there. Number 18, number 18 on the list is Nightwatch. This is a Russian fantasy horror sort of hybrid based off of, uh, one of my favorite, um, novel series ever adapted for the screen by the writer of the novels, um, his name is super long and I've never gotten the pronunciation right in my life. So I'm not even going to risk it now. Um, but then the, uh, the director, 
his first name's Timur, I can't remember how to pronounce his last name, but he takes the reins with this movie and creates something that visually you only usually see in like stop motion animation or animation. Like the visuals in this film are fantastic and they are just so smooth and so well crafted. And if you don't watch movies with subtitles when they're in a foreign language, first of all, you should be, it's reading. It's not scary. They make you, they make you do it at the beginning and the end of the movie anyway. So you might as well do it in the middle as well. Uh, but with this film, they actually incorporated the subtitles in a certain extent into the, the, the ambiance and the, and the styling of the film, which gave it a whole other level. Um, but it's, it's your whole concept of the battle between good and evil, but told from the mind of a Russian philosopher and what he wrote in the books and then for the screen. And it is such a unique handling of, of the material and of the, of the, the storyline that we all know so well of the battle of good and evil. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, with the new star Wars movies, I just kept thinking back to the, these books and going in this, this movie and its sequel and just going, man, if they had, you know, they should have, they should have taken a couple of, of pages out of these books and, and really incorporate it into their thought process. Cause it would have been something absolutely amazing. Um, and that, and that, I mean, that's, that's just, it's, it's something unique that you've seen before, but you watch it and you go, I want to see this end up in other places, which is always the sign of something really strong. Uh, so number 17, moving on, moving on from there to number 17, number 17 is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Um, because I'm into self-deprecation, I would like to point out that when I was writing out the list on an easy-to-read tablet, um, no paper tablet, um, I spelled Taylor not as in the person working on the suits, but as in a guy named Taylor, or a girl named Taylor, because I'm a genius. Uh, this movie, even with its cast, should not work. Um... It's pacing is slow as hell. And yet it's right at the speed it needs to be. Um, it, it's no question to me why Gary Oldman got his very first Oscar nomination for this film. He normally is these, you know, big, loud, all over the place characters. And then he comes into this movie and he is silent and methodical. And he really doesn't talk unless he has something to say that he knows everyone needs to hear. And it's, it's this totally different performance from him. And it is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Um, so you, you know, you get that, but you get, I mean, it's, you know, from the George, it's from the, the story is taken from the George Smiley series by uh, John LeCare. Uh, who who's written amazing books about this character who 
from all accounts in the books, a little looks a little bit more like Toby Jones than he does Gary Oldman, but I let it slide. Um, there have been worse adaptations of, of characters on that level looking at you, Jack Reacher. Um, but it's, this is one of those movies. I watched it and then I watched it again because I felt like I hadn't fully absorbed it, even though I had given it my full attention and not because it was bad, not because the pacing was off, but because it just felt like there was so much under the surface in this movie that I needed to just watch it again. And now it's, now it's a background noise movie for me. Now it's a movie where I can just enjoy the score and the, the dialogue when it appears and just listen and enjoy it. Enjoy the soothing tones of Gary Oldman, John Hurt, Mark Strong, Colin Firth, Benedict Cumberbatch, Tom Hardy, and so many others. Especially Mark Strong, though. I mean, seriously, can, can that guy just, you know, can he just read me bedtime stories to put me to sleep every single night? Because his voice is just... I love his voice. I I won't lie. It's 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 a beautiful voice. He he can be proud of it. But yeah, so it's just it's one of those movies that people I think people just skipped on it because at that point they gotten used to okay, if it's if it's got spies, there should be lots of shooting and action and they just keep showing me a bunch of guys sitting at a boardroom table. So I'm going to pass on it. And I think if you were one of those people, you missed out and you need to go and give it a try or give it a second try if you watched it and you didn't like it because it is a movie that is not just surface level and in, in all the best ways. Uh, so moving on from that is is number 16. And number 16... Um, this, I'm, I'm going to preface it with the story of, I went to go see this movie knowing I was going to ball my eyes out, warned, warned my, my wife, then just girlfriend, uh, that as soon as we sat down, I told her the exact moment in the movie where I was going to start crying, where I knew I would start crying a ton watching this film and she didn't believe me. Then we got to that point in the movie and she looked over at one point and realized he wasn't kidding. That movie, Where the Wild Things Are. This, this is one that's just felt personal to me in a lot of ways. Um, this, like, the book, we always had to have a copy in the house. If my dad couldn't find a copy of this book in the house, he would go out and buy another copy. And, and I've, main, I've maintained that in my life because of how important that book is to me. Um, it's, and the, the movie, the movie is just an amazing adaptation. It, it's one of the, the best adaptations of a children's book that I've ever seen in my life. And it's the, I mean, the effects work is just absolutely spellbinding and, and beautiful and so, so unique and how it is it is presented James Gandolfini giving a performance that proves that we need to be giving voice work and and, and motion capture work more a recognition during award season not that the award seasons don't have like 50 million other problems that they need to fucking fix right now but still it's 
his performance especially is just something to behold. And it's just something that just drops you. It drops you into the world, but it also just drops you, drops you to the point and breaks your heart so much. Um, it's just, it's, you know, it's one of, I mean, I, I literally had tears during watching trailers. I was so excited for this movie. I remember years before the movie actually came out when there was leaked test footage, when it was like first getting announced, and there was like test footage of Max of a kid playing Max and him sitting, you know, him sitting on the cliff with, with a, one or two wild things and them just talking. And I remember watching that and just being, feeling overpowered even then because something that I, that I had grown up with and loved so much was suddenly here alive in front of me. Um, so this, yeah, this is, yeah, this movie's second hardest I've ever cried in a movie. First is, first is Coco. This is the first one that didn't, emo- that didn't manipulate me at a very unfortunate time in my life to make me cry the most. Though. So it gets, it gets a little bit of an edge just on, on, on that, despite not being the one that made me cry the most. Uh, number, number 15, uh, going back into my documentaries, it's Waking Sleeping Beauty. Again, I've spoken on this one before, but seriously, guys, um, listening to Howard Ashman describe visually what would be going on while you were listening to Under the Sea and The Little Mermaid, it gives me chills. Every single time, it gives me chills. It is... The, the movie as a whole, if you are somebody who loves animation, if you are somebody who loves Disney animated films, you owe it to yourself to see this film. And now, thank goodness, with Disney+, Plus, it is e- the most accessible the film has ever been. So, watch it. It is, it is just beautiful. It is a film made by animators that were there at the time and you just feel a level of trust in the story that you're being told because of that. So I I won't dwell on that too much more just because again, I've talked on it before. Um, so moving on to something so intensely different. Number 14 is the dreamers. This, this is one of those movies that I can only watch once in a blue moon because it is so in it's so raw it's intense without necessarily having anything that would make you think of it being intense and it's brave everything about it is brave the performances are incredibly brave they're fearless i mean the to the things that you watch and experience in this film especially from from evergreen just you know, and a sort of coming out party to the world about the the caliber of actor that she just hit the ground running as. It's it's one of those movies that I think most people have just heard of as that movie where Evergreen walks around naked a lot, and that does happen. But she's one; she's not the only one. And two, there is this haunting 
slow boil of a, it's this, it's, it's that whole sequence in a movie where there's a kettle on and you hear it in the background, slowly getting hotter and hotter and the steam building up and up and up and up being used the tension is building because you know, you know, it's going to happen and you just don't know when. And this is one of those movies. This is absolutely one of those movies. I watched it because I was trying to find some more evergreen movies. And then this one, uh, found it for, for dirt cheap at, at like a blockbuster when it was on his way out. So I grabbed it and was like, okay, cool. This is another one for me to watch. I kinda, I, I kinda knew that it was a movie with a lot of nude, a movie with a lot of nudity in it, partially due to the fact that, you know, I was picking up a film that was like, this is NC-17. I was like, okay, this not going to be a normal movie watching experience for me. But I was so glad that I did it because it was, it, it just, it's haunting. Michael Pitt is the best leading a film that he's ever been in this movie. Um, and just so perfectly melds in with these other characters, all of them having some of the strongest chemistry that you'll ever see in, in a movie that's kind of a romantic movie, but not a flat out romance. Um, so yeah, it's, it might be a harder pill to swallow, but still one worth watching. Um, moving on from that, to, to again, going a little, little different of a ways. We've got number 13, which is 12 angry men. Yes. Even for the sake of the symmetry, I, I, I committed to it being at number 13 instead of bumping it up one. I'm okay with that. Um, this, this is a movie. A lot of the times when I was, uh, writing in college and shortly after college, uh, this was, this would be a background noise movie for me while I was writing. Um, it's such a, uh, it is a perfectly choreographed film and the, and the, the, the work from the actors beyond just Fonda, it cannot be understated in how amazing they all do and how amazing their performances and their personas and their just existence in the world is, uh, it's just constant tension. It's you're trying to read everyone in the room. It is this strange game of tennis where it's just this back and forth where suddenly out of nowhere, someone will hop the net and be on the other team playing with them. And it's just, it moves at its own pace and you can either keep up or you can fuck off. And it's one of those movies in all the right ways. And for, for that, I just, I, I love it. I love that sort of rapid, high energy, no time to breathe, no time to relax. We're going to pretend that we're relaxing right here, but you're not going to. Our characters might kind of be relaxing right now, but we know you're not going to. Why? Because there's still this many characters that want this kid to die. 
and you walked into this room knowing that you wanted to root for Fonda. So what are you going to do? And there's so much of that mentality thrown into it, and it's fantastic. Um, so we're going to move on from that one. It's Everyone should have seen that movie by now. If you haven't, you're... Shame. Shame on you, is all I got to say. Number 12. Number, tw- number 12 on the list is Hero. Um, Dustin Hoffman, Gina David. No, I'm just not that hero. Not that hero. Um, no, this is, uh, the Jet Li film, uh, starring film. I, I was working at a movie theater when this film came out. Um, I, it's honestly, it's where I started to get a little bit of resentment towards Quentin Tarantino because they splashed his name so big on this poster and we had to keep telling people that literally all he did was he gave them money to put get it out in the USA. Um, but it is visually stunning. Uh, the whole fight between uh, Jet Li and Donnie Yen, I can watch that sequence every day. It is just so, so beautiful. The, the fight choreography is is just on point. The cinematography that goes with those fight sequences, especially is just, I mean, so many action films in America should be embarrassed when they see the choreography and styling that exists in this film, uh, for, for how things are developed and how they look, because it is, Amazing! It is a sight to behold. Um, the the movie, it just again, it's another one of these. Nobody gives a bad performance. I I went into it blind, and just found myself with my mouth open almost the entire movie because it was just so powerful to sit and experience the film. Um. And to experience what was happening in front of me, it was it was something else. Um, I I still because life becomes a lot harder when you go from being a teenager with no life to uh, twice that age, and you're a father and a husband, and you have to pay bills. So life gets a little harder. So I still haven't seen the director's new movie Shadow, but it's on it's high on my list. So that's going to be happening soon. Um, but moving on from there, number 11, number 11 is the Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring. This, I, I feel in this day and age because of things like the MCU, because of things like the, the star Wars sequels, um, the planet of the, because of so many big films, and how big tentpole features have gotten at this point. I think a lot of people these days forget how brave, bold, and groundbreaking the first Lord of the Rings film especially was. You know, it, it was a time when it was that was not the norm. It was you didn't normally get these big fantastical set piece films anymore. You got these dark color broody sci-fi movies you had your girly romantic comedies there there was not a ton of range 
at the time in the mainstream, what was being pushed out in the mainstream, there's always variety, but what was existing in the big mainstream of film did not include films like Lord of the Rings at the time. It, it paved the way. I mean, it is, it is, whether you like it or not, it's, it's generation Star Wars. Uh, plain and simple. And the reason it accomplished all that is because it is a, it is a, a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, the, the performances, the casting was, was spot on. Uh, the performances are so, so honest and organic. I mean, when you're starting off your movie with a bunch of scenes between Ian Holm and Ian McKellen, unless you have a terrible writer, which these films obviously did not, you're not going to get a bad start to your film. And the, and that was the way it was with this. I mean, I I had not really read any Tolkien when this movie was being produced. My father, Big Shock, is a comic book guy. He also had read everything Tolkien had written. Only if Tolkien had written it. Nothing else. Um, but when I saw the the one of the first posters they ever made for the film was the boats going down the river between the statues of the two Kings. And I saw that poster in a movie theater going to see a different movie. And I knew in that moment, this is going to be a great film. I need to go see it. And I was not disappointed. And I now own that poster. And it's one of my favorite posters to have up. Um, but it just, it, it was such a, a reawakening for so much adrenaline and passion in film because it just was kind of a reminder of, look what can be done now. You know, we, we've gone from Ray Harryhausen personally crafting all these skeleton soldiers and them kind of having their own unique behaviors to a bunch of guys in a room put some lines of code in a computer and now we are flying through the air across this battlefield watching every single individual CGI character doing their own thing doing their own part of the battle and it I mean again it was our that that sweeping shot in the prologue that was our version of the of Vader's star star destroyer slowly taking forever to fully get into the shot at the beginning of Star Wars. It was our moment of going, things have changed. The rules are different of what we're going to be getting in in film now. And it was so exciting to see. And it was so... As a kid, you know, I mean, the movie came out in 2001. Um... I was I was still like preteen teenager age at that time and it was just despite having watched so many older movies and despite having watched movies like Jurassic Park and stuff like that it was still unlike anything I'd ever seen and I knew for my dad it was the same way he was experiencing something he hadn't experienced since the first Star Wars and um, because of that, I mean, those films, they, they hold a special place in, in, in my family's heart. We, we will 
if we're all together in the house, not as much these days for numerous reasons, mainly just allotting to the whole kids growing up, having kids thing. But when my sister and I were in college, um, a lot of the time, if we were going to be home all day during a, like Christmas break, my dad would wake up, go downstairs, put in disc one of Lord of uh, fellowship in the ring extended edition. And he had just let all three movies, extended editions play on the TV throughout the day. Was that or America's got talent? We were, we were all over the place in my house. We were, we were very all over the place. Um, but yeah, this, it, this was just a movie that, um, it just, it hit me and it affected me on such a large scale when it came out. Um, and still to this day, watching it just blows my mind at, at what's been accomplished. Uh, but with that, we are we are in the top ten now. We are at top ten, final ten movies now. Um, so we're going to start that off, obviously, with number ten. We're going to start off with seven and just go random. No, we're starting off with number ten. Number ten is Wally. This is peak Pixar. I, I will argue that all day with people. This is the pinnacle of what Pixar has accomplished um, with taking what they can do with computer animation, mixing it with storytelling, and creating something that is just so unique and fun and original and relatable, even in the most unrelatable of circumstances. And Wally was, I mean, it just, it blew my mind sitting there realizing that I still had yet to hear a legitimate line of dialogue, that I had yet to hear characters interacting with each other through dialogue in a modern film, and and it was this major studios making their annual animated film, and I still wasn't getting what I was used to getting, but I still knew everything I needed to know. I needed everything I needed to know about the characters, about the plot, about how characters felt about each other. It was just something else. And then we get onto the ship and the, the fun and the adventure, you know, we, we never, we never compromise the stakes for humor or the humor for stakes at any point in the film and it just was just wow. It was just a wowing experience. Um, something that you really hadn't seen anyone, any major studio really be this bold as to go, what if our character is this dirty, you know, trash robot? that we make kind of cute looking, but he's still dirty and covered in trash. And he says his name and that's all he can say. And that's it. And this is pre Hodor in game of Thrones. So the idea of a character that just said one thing over and over again was not normal yet. Um, at least not to, to the mainstream audiences. I think by that point, people were still in like year four or five of waiting for book three. I don't know. I can't keep track, but yeah, just a phenomenal, phenomenal film. Um, and again, it's, 
it, it's the peak of what has been able to be accomplished by Pixar Animation Studios. Um, and still to this day, even even with how much I love movies like Coco, uh, it's still just the, the pinnacle of what they've been able to accomplish. Now, moving on from that, moving on from that, we get to uh, number nine. Number nine is Rope by the master himself, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, of course, a lot of people right now are talking about 1917, um, which uh, I I got to do recently with Movie Marathoners podcast, and uh, so they'll be posting our chatting about that soon. Um, so make sure to check that out. Check them out regardless, but make sure to check that out. Uh, but um, but Rope to me is the quintessential of what amazing things can come out of doing single take. Um, cause you can view it, you can view it as a gimmick and it is a gimmick at the end of the day, it is a gimmick, but you can view it as being just a gimmick or you can look at what it's doing. And with this, it was Hitchcock experimenting with a new way of creating tension and suspense. I mean, imagine a, a whodunit where it's not about who done it it's about who will get ca- will they get caught it's about we know who did it they did it on purpose now the question is are they going to get caught and that camera does everything it can to force you to not be able so often to see what you want to see it forces you to see to look at things at times and it forces you to not be able to see things at other times there is a moment in that film that to this day, I still get a little anxiety watching it because the tension builds so intensely and literally all they do to build that tension, the way they do it, is by setting the camera in one spot and refusing to move it no matter how much the audience needs the camera to move. And it lands. It lands beautifully in that way. Uh, And it just continues to play the the leads in this film are so brilliantly twisted um there's lore to the film um given to the fact that the characters are based off of a homosexual couple um so it's another one of hitchcock's movies where he does fun little things to to tell everything that he he wants to tell without making the the Hayes Code angry. Um, so they're a gay couple. We never say they're a gay couple because you weren't allowed to during the Hayes uh, in the Hayes Code era. Nobody was allowed to be homosexual in that area, in that era. But he does little things like, can I use the phone? Oh, I say yeah. It's in the bedroom, just the bedroom. It's a place that two guys live in, and there's only one bedroom. There's your hint. And they have other little things in there, but that's one of that's one of the most um, that's one of the most prominent ones. But yeah, it's one of those movies that you anyone who did it in this day and age would be so heavy-handed. But Hitchcock is just so he's stingy. He's very stingy in this film with what he lets you experience and what you get out of everything and and so on and so forth and so by the end you are just you are wrecked you are a wreck by the end of this movie 
because you need to know what's going to happen. You need to know where this is or that is, and it just will not let you. Um, but going on from that to a movie that's all about showing you things in the best way is my number eight, which is Note by Note, The Making of Steinway L1037. Uh, again, this is uh, this was my number one movie on my Best Documentaries episode, uh, so I've talked about it a bunch, but Note by Note is one of those movies that you need to watch. Um, listening to the craftsmen talk about the process of building a grand concert piano and watching them do it and watching that craftsmanship and, and that and that work it's kind of like the the oddly satisfying videos that you see online all the time um this to me is not odd how satisfying it is it is just blatantly satisfying and it's you know it's this little it's this little indie film that that does what it wants to do goes against the grain in a few ways in terms of normal documentary storytelling, but across the board, it works. It just constantly works. So again, I won't, I won't live on that too much just cause again, talked about in, in that episode, but again, note by note, go see it, go rent it, buy it, whatever. I don't care. Just watch it. Uh, number seven, Number seven on the list is Selma. I am not sure I've ever had an experience in a movie theater that matches the one I had watching Selma. I... It just, I mean, even even reliving it mentally in my head is something else. The, the There was literally a point in the movie where I wanted to scream at, at the, at what was going on, my fists were clenched so hard that my palms were, like, pouring out sweat, I was ready to start crying, I wanted to just leave, because I didn't want to see what was happening anymore, um, but I also wanted to jump through the screen and just try to help as best as I could, um, I left that movie just trying not to sob, but unable to keep myself from at least having tears coming down my face. Um, the, I mean, the supporting cast in this film, I mean, nothing should be taken away from, from our, 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 our leads in this film, but the supporting cast is what makes this film to me. It's, it's what makes it so strong. And I don't think it's an accident that it is that way. I think it embodies, um, what's going on on screen and the message on the screen and, th and things of that nature. It's just, it was a movie that was offensively ignored too much during that award season. Um, and as a result, I think a lot of people just skipped it altogether in a lot of, I think a lot of people skipped it. Um, but it's, it's just, it's something, 
it's something else. It's something absolutely incredible. It's something, um, that lives in a, in a realm of film that so many other movies wanted to be in. And this one does it and it does it with such grace and, and humility and a refusal to shy away from what people might not want to see. Um, I, I was legitimately grateful towards the, the filmmakers for making this film and for their not allowing it to be a safe film for anyone to sit through. Um, I, I, I was legitimately grateful for that because I watching it, I knew I shouldn't be feeling safe per se. And yeah, it was just a whole different experience. Unlike most any I've ever been a part of in a movie. Uh, but stepping away from that, the, the incredible somberness of Selma, uh, we go to my number six, my number six, movie is L.A. Story. This is Steve Martin in the 90s just owning a film, you know, that he, he, I mean, he wrote and he starred in this and he just, he crafted something so beautiful, beautiful and brilliant and, and just, just the right level of, of metaphor and symbolism and parallels and making fun of people from LA, which I appreciated that part. Anyone I I knew that lived in LA did not get the movie, (laughs) did not get where a lot of the humor was coming from. But of course, a lot of the humor was coming from make fun of making fun of people who are from LA and the way that they would behave in a normal, on any normal given day and time. Um, it's, it is a, I don't, it's not a timeless movie. It is very much a movie of its era, but I don't think it would work as one that was, completely 100% devoid of of an era that it lives in but it still nonetheless the jokes hold up the romance holds up the romance is just very poetic in the way it works in the way it moves in the way the, the chemistry is with the characters and their interactions with each other there's this um, absolutely like absolutely amazing cameo by Rick Moranis in the movie that just you're you're not ready for it and then it comes in and you're like oh crap that's Rick Moranis and he's awesome um there's i mean there's a ton of people in this movie um just a ton of really smart people who knew i'm going to help my friend make make this movie and it was just, it was, it was, it's one I've been watching since I was a teenager and it, it it's just lives in me. Um, 
But moving on from that, we're moving on from that. We're at number five. We're in top five now. Number five is Frost Nixon. This this movie. I mean, the the the, the easiest way for me to describe just how powerful this movie is. I went to go see it in theaters with friends, with the same group of friends that I saw Quantum of Solace, the the bomb movie that came out that same time frame. We all went to go see both movies together. We left Frost, Frost Nixon, took a few steps outside, stopped, and went, were we all on the edge of our seat more with this movie than we were with a James Bond movie? And we were, and it's not because of the quality or lack thereof of Quantum of Solace, it's because even though it's a movie about two guys sitting, talking to each other, the chemistry, the writing, the pacing, the tension, the the way they build up to everything is so, such a masterclass on how to handle the, the material that it cannot be sh- it cannot be shunned away, it cannot be shied at at all. Um, it's just, it's something else. And Kevin Bacon gives one of his career best performances in the film, um, to the point where he is downright heartbreaking near the end. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just such an intense movie for, again, a, a movie that you know the ending of because it takes place, it's a true story and it's two guys sitting for the majority of the the crux of the film. And yet, tension, so much tension, so much brilliant tension in the film. Um, Just a a movie that it felt like people ignored because that's what it was. I know some people, like, I have an uncle, he ignored, he didn't want to go see the movie because his opinion was, I had to watch the real thing on TV and sit through it, why would I watch a movie about it, and I get that, but for anyone who doesn't feel like that, you need to watch it, um, so moving on from that, number four, number four, um, (laughs) is a left fielder for the most part, but, uh, number four for me is Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, um, Mystery Science Theater is just a big part of my life, it, it has been a major player in my mental health for just just a little bit before my parents got divorced when I was a child. Uh, it helped me get through their divorce. It helped me get through so many other things in my life. It helped keep keep me safe from myself on so many occasions. And the movie is just such a great... Um, culmination of everything that the TV show had and just putting it on the big screen and giving you that, but more and, and picking such a great film to, to do it with a film, a film that in its own right has some, some amazing visual effects to it. Debatably in some cases, better visual effects than the movie it's in being made fun of. Um, but they do, you know, it's, there's a craftsmanship with what those guys do that, that cannot be denied, cannot be ignored, cannot be refuted. And, um, this movie, it's one that I can turn it on and I can sit there and just all their quips. I can say them with them in time. 
uh, without shame at all for that fact. So, uh, number three, moving on to number three, my number three, very different <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. My number three is Lawrence of Arabia. Um, this film, the first time I watched it was on a laptop on a bus, uh, on a long bus trip. I watched the whole movie on a laptop. It did not take away from the quality of the film. It did not take away from it the the epicness of it. It did not take away from the grandeur. It did not take away from the performances. It is just, it is such an amazing film that the screen it's on is incidental. Give, I mean, don't get me wrong. I want to see this movie on a big screen and see those beautiful shots on a big screen. But I don't need them to know how amazing this film is. And this film is amazing. Uh, it is smart. It is just mean at times almost. Because it's just... It's it's a rare movie of just going, this is what it was like. This is the way it is. There's still that like propaganda-ish, pro-war... Um, I, I line that kind of existed in war films up until the seventies, but it's still, it's, it still was unapologetic in so many ways. And, and Peter O'Toole just not coming out the gate to just introduce himself to the world in a way that was just beautiful and, and intense. And I mean, he carries that movie in ways that are almost unthinkable for anyone to be able to accomplish. So, um, it's, it's a, it's a journey to, to sit through just because it is a chunk of time, but it won't feel like it. So make sure, make sure you watch it. Um, my number two, my number two film is Brazil. I know there's a, Again, I know there's a lot of stuff about Terry Gilliam right now and, and drama, and I'm not going to defend it, but Brazil to me is just, it is a near-perfect film. Um, the the dark comedy aspects, um, the dark comedy aspects of the film are just something else. They are, the I mean, the opening arrest is hysterical, is absolutely hysterical. The visuals are unique and original. Um, the <sighs> the performances are just unique and and unabashed. Uh, it's it's one of those movies. I always I'm always scared to recommend it to people because you're gonna love it or you're gonna hate it. Is the bottom line. You're not guaranteed to love this movie, but if you do. You're, you're welcome. Well, you're welcome on my table either way. It's a terrible thing to say. Um, and here we are, number one. Um, which, I wonder how many people have figured it's going to be anticlimactic. Because, uh, number one, as, as we discussed in the very first episode of this series, is Limelight. 1952, Charlie Chaplin, Limelight. It is his love letter to the age of vaudeville. It is a beautiful 
dance of comedy and drama and the views of life from both old and old age and youth and the parallels that show business have to life as a whole. It is amazing. Um, I just recommend if you really want to hear a big, long ramble on it, uh, go ahead and watch our, or not watch, listen to our first episode. Um, we spend like an hour almost talking about it. Um, and very much, very much deserves so. We made it. We're here. We're at the end. We did it. We got through it. Was it good for you? It was all right for me. Was that weird for me to say? I don't care. Um, yeah, looking back on, on doing all this stuff, I, I will be the first to admit, um, my variety in terms of time periods of film, um, region, you know, like foreign films to American films, female directors to, to male directors, directors of color versus white directors. My variety, I, I have discovered is not as great as I would have liked to have imagined that it is, um, doing all of this. And I certainly am looking forward to, to changing that. Um, and I, and it's, I think the biggest reason why I recommend that everyone do, do what I did, at least in the going through letterbox, um, and combing through what they have in there. But, um, yeah. What did, what did you think of this whole big, this whole big thing? Uh, give me, give me your thoughts. Uh, you, is there a movie that wasn't on here that you think should have been, um, in, in my quest to expand my, my catalogs variety is, are there movies that you, that you think I absolutely need to see? Tell me all about everything you agree, disagree with and recommend to me. Uh, you know, the show has its Twitter feed, um, at movies work for us on Twitter, movies after work at gmail.com. If you guys want to email, um, the rest of the month, we're going to be having some guest stuff coming up. Um, I don't have my calendar for, uh, the, the order of, of events. I don't want to get your hopes up for something and then it doesn't come out when I say it will. But, um, I, again, I really hope you guys enjoyed this. Thank you so much for listening. Um, give, give some talks to what you, what you liked. Uh, you can listen to this show on Spotify, iTunes, so many other places, um, so feel free to listen to some, some older episodes. It's always fun to see that people are, are going into the back catalog. Um, with that, I will say what I always say, which is have a good, have a good one. Have a great day at work. Bye-bye.